Today's text is from Acts chapter 12, verse 25 through 13, 3. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It is an amazing mystery what Christ has done for us. I love that song. Thanks for leading that, Blaine. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I pray that we will discover you again to be the, the mystery revealed, the mystery that we who are far have been brought near, that we've encountered the Lord of life, that you walk with us every day, and that you send us out in your name. We, that we could bear the name of Jesus, that we could be included into your plans and your mission. May we be open to whatever it is you want to speak to us this morning. Jesus, we're here to hear from you. Speak to us by your spirit. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we just finished Judges last Sunday, and so now we're back in the book of Acts. We started Acts in January. Um, I have a little bit of ADD when it comes to sermon series. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones spent 13 years going through Romans, I don't, I, and I get, you know, after six months, I want to I mix it up. So I like to take summers off, do something short, and then, um, and then we come back to what we were preaching through, especially if we're doing like a long series like Acts, which is going to take us uh, quite a while. But we are picking back up in chapter 13. And if you were here in January when I started the book of Acts, I began it with an object lesson. Um, and, and I had a little cross I made of popsicle sticks. And I said, if I held this up, you knew exactly what it is. You, you know, if you're a Christian, anyways, you know exactly what it is. You know what it stands for, what it signifies, the meaning behind it. And, and I was like, imagine this popsicle stick cross is like the church. The church, you know, it it's, has a clear meaning and purpose in the Bible, why Jesus brought it into existence, what it's supposed to do. But inevitably, we begin to add all these things to the church. I was wrapping in tissue paper, and, 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 and some of these things are, are great things to add. Some of them are, are not as great. But over time, as we wrap it in more and more things, we get to the end of the day, and, and we just don't know what it is anymore. What is this for? What are we supposed to be doing here? What exactly is the purpose of this thing that we're doing together called church. And this is why preaching through Acts is so refreshing. It's like a breath of wind from the Spirit blowing through our kind of spiritual vision, removing the cobwebs that accumulate, helping us see the simple beauty of what the gospel, it is, of what the gospel is and the effect that it has in our lives, um, if we allow it. And what we find clear as day in Acts is that the church was created to be a missionary community. That's the simple truth. Church was not made to have a missions program. It was made to be a missionary program. Likewise, it wasn't made to have an evangelistic program, but to be an evangelistic community. It was created with an orientation towards mission, which means the church will do more than mission, but everything the church does is oriented, is 
pointed towards, this mission that Jesus has given us. And, and the story of Acts is the story of the church doing just that, living out all of their life together oriented towards this, this mission, right? The gospel bursts forth in Jerusalem, but it does not stay in Jerusalem. It keeps breaking forth and going further and further. And that's why the title of the series is uh, The Gospel on the Move from Jerusalem to Rome. That is the story of the gospel. It is never content to sit in one place, but it must move forward into territory where Jesus is not proclaimed or known. And in the text we're looking at this morning, we're seeing a new step in this gospel on the move. In fact, if you, you could divide Acts into two books, into two main parts. And the first part would be Acts 1 to 12, which is focused almost exclusively on Jerusalem and what Jesus is doing in Jerusalem. And then 13 to 28 is what Jesus is doing by his spirit around the world. That's why we, it's a very logical place to kind of take a break. Uh, and so we're picking back up here, and, and we're about to begin the very first missionary movement of the gospel going out into the Gentile world, the Roman Empire. And so uh, an outline for us this morning, first point, is a day in the life of Antioch. Second point is the spirit sends out. And the third point is the church obeys. So first point, a day in the life of Antioch. And I want to give a quick recap again of Acts, because it's been a few months, uh, and, uh, and just where we are and where we've been, where we're, we're picking up. But if you remember, Acts begins with a game plan, and it's Acts 1.8. Uh, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to ends of the earth. That's the game plan of Acts. Uh, we've entered a new age of God's What's the word? Uh, I'm trying to think of like a non-seminary word here. Of God's actions in the world, of his, of his work in the world, and, the, and the, the, the defining character of how God works in the world in this time we're in is his spirit. That's what, the, that's what Peter says, Joel 2, one day I'll pour out my, fle- my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, even your, on your male and female servants I'll pour out my spirit. And Peter says, that's been fulfilled. We now have the Spirit of God, the presence of God dwelling in us. We are now temples. We don't go to a temple to worship God. He now dwells in you if you are in Christ. But why is he giving you his Spirit? Acts 1.8, so that you might bear witness, so that you'll be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so that's that's the game plan for all of this. And and again, chapters 1 and 12 are focusing on what Jesus does by his Spirit in Jerusalem. But even still, there are are, are foundations being laid, hints being dropped that this is going to go far beyond Jerusalem, beyond just the fact that Jesus said so in Acts 1.8. But in the storyline itself, it's preparing us, it's laying foundations for how the gospel is going to go beyond just Jerusalem. We see that first in in, in two uh, important ministries, the ministry of Stephen, the deacon, and uh, Philip, the deacon. So Stephen is martyred, but in his courageous teaching and martyrdom, the church is then forced out of Jerusalem up till Acts 6 when Stephen is martyred. The church is, like, they're living, like, an amazing life. Testimony to the grace of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. Deep friendship and relationship, and there's no poor, and they're giving their resources, and people are coming to faith. Would have been very easy to be content there. But then this persecution breaks out, and it seems to be a negative thing, but it's actually the sovereign hand of God forcing his people out of Jerusalem. Don't be content. Don't stay. You've got a place to go. Move, because the gospel's on the move. And then Philip's courageous ministry to, uh, to the Samaritans. 
In the Samaritans, we see the first non-Jews become Christians. And in fact, it's such a shocking thing that when the church in Jerusalem hears that the Samaritans have received the gospel and trusted in Jesus, they send Peter and John, like the big guns, to investigate. And when they're there, the Spirit descends on the Samaritans. And everyone's blown away. So salvation is not just for the Jews. It's the first step in seeing that the gospel is not just good news for the Jews, but it's good news for the whole world. There's also two conversions we see that are very important in these first 12 chapters. First is the conversion of Saul, the arch enemy of the church, one of the most uh, effective enemies that the church had at this time, and yet Jesus had other plans for Saul. And Jesus encounters Saul, and Saul puts his faith in Jesus. But from the very beginning, Jesus lets everyone know that he has a specific plan for Saul. In fact, when he's talking to Aeneas, who's the man that... I think that was the name. Uh, the man that Jesus uses to bring the gospel to Saul. Jesus tells this man, but the Lord said to him, Go, for he, Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. So you have the conversion of Saul and his specific purpose. Jesus is going to use him to take the gospel beyond the Jewish people to the Gentiles. And then we also have the conversion of the first non-Jewish, well, the first, sorry, first Gentile. Again, the Samaritans, they were ethnically and religiously very uh, related to, to the Jews. They were basically a heretical offshoot of Judaism. But with Cornelius and his household, you get the first real Gentiles who had no background and no ethnic relationship to the Jewish people, and they become Christians. And again, God uses Peter to be part of this because he knows how shocking this is going to be for Jews who really viewed the gospel as for them, a Jewish reality, an ethnic reality. And so God sends Peter to be part of this, to see Cornelius and his household convert, and to see the Spirit descend on them, so that when people in Jerusalem are throwing fits, Peter can come and say, I saw the Spirit descend on these Christians. And then lastly, the last part of this puzzle that is preparing us for this first missionary movement is the rise of, of Antioch. The church planted in the city of Antioch. Antioch was a major city, one of the three major cities of the Mediterranean world. Over 500,000 people. Y'all, that's, that's a big city by today's standards. It was a mega, mega metropolis at that time. It was culturally, ethnically, and religiously diverse. Perfect launching ground for a mission to a culturally, ethnically, and religiously diverse empire. And today, we get a snapshot into the early church in Antioch. That's the first point, a day in the life of Antioch. We get a, just a snapshot of what, this, what was the church doing in Antioch when the Spirit spoke to them and said, send out Saul and Barnabas. And so this is verse 1. Go ahead and, and follow along as I read this again for us. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who's called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So the first thing we're told is that there were prophets and teachers, and immediately that makes us very uncomfortable, that there were prophets. Now, you have to use some qualifications here. Uh, when we are reading descriptions of the early church, the church did not have the New Testament. They did not have, right, First Timothy and Titus, they can go and look at, like, hey, this is what, they're making it up as they go. And so there's just a lot of diversity in the New Testament church. And so we need to be careful about like reading like, hey, this is prescriptive. I don't think this is given to us to tell us we should have prophets as an office of the church or even teachers as an office of the church. I think what it's telling us is that these are ministries that were present. 
in the church. There were people that did a lot of teaching and they became known as teachers. There were people who did a lot of prophesying and they became known as prophets. It's the ministries of teaching and prophecy that are important here. Still begs the question, though, what is prophecy and how is it different than teaching? And, um, and I'll, I'll be frank with you. In the last couple of decades, there has been a lot of academic research and, uh, and debate on this, on this subject. And I certainly have not had time to, I mean, if you want to give me a six-month sabbatical, I can come back with a, a thorough answer. Uh, but in terms of just preaching every Sunday, I'm just going to have to give you a, a very tentative, a, a tentative uh, um, approach to this. Um, so here goes. Uh, I think oftentimes when we think of prophecy, we, we, we think of, of mostly predicting future events. On a popular level, if someone's like, I'm going to prophesy, we're like, okay, you're going to predict a future event. But when we look at the scriptures, sometimes that's what prophecy is. But especially in the New Testament, it seems to refer to something else actually far more often than just predicting future events. And I think we get a sense of what prophecy is more broadly when Paul addresses prophecy in the Corinthian church. So in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, he's writing to a church that was really impressed with like dramatic spiritual gifts, like tongues and healing. Uh, and Paul's arguing that actually prophecy, which is not nearly as exciting as tongues, is actually far more helpful for the church. And this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 14.3. Paul says, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. So what's the purpose of prophecy? Well, it's upbuilding, to edify, uh, to encourage, to console, to comfort, to bring comfort and sorrow. Uh, and so teachers, you know, teaching can do that too, but what it seems to be the case is that there's something about prophecy that speaks to the heart, that speaks to a specific situation in someone's life in a supernatural ways if God is speaking directly to you, right? If teaching is just kind of communicating broad principles, doctrine, prophecy is this is what Lord wants to say to you in your life with what's going on in your context, and so I think we, and I think this makes sense of, of how Paul describes prophecy later in chapter 14, where he says, if all prophesy in a church and an unbeliever outsider walks in, this outsider is convicted by all. He's called to account and the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And he falls on his knees and declares, God must be among you. I remember reading that in high school and thinking, how does that make, because I was thinking of prophecy as predicting the future. I'm like, if someone walked into a church and everyone's like, in 50 years, this is going to be the president. And in 30 years, this is going to happen. It's like, that'd be kind of weird. I don't know if anyone would be like, oh my goodness, you, you, God must be among you. My heart's convicted. Just, but if we understand prophecy as a God-inspired utterance that speaks to a specific event in a Christian's life, that applies the faith doctrine to a, in a specific way that's like supernatural and how specific it is, well, that makes a lot more sense if someone walks in and and people are going up to him and saying, hey, God has a word for you, and it's this. And they're like, how did you, how did you know that my dad just died? Or how did you know? That makes sense if someone would fall on their knees and say, God must be among you. So what is teaching? What is prophecy? Here's my tentative answer. Teaching is passing along the deposit of faith once and for all delivered to the saints. It's bringing understanding. Uh, the teaching ministry is teaching the, the truths and the doctrines that are true for every Christian that everyone needs to know. Prophecy is that deposit of faith, Christian doctrine, applied 
to specific situations in an unusual supernatural way. In a way as if God is speaking straight into our, into our lives, encouraging, convicting, consoling. And so we see these ministries in the church at Antioch. And we continue to need the ministries of teaching and of prophecy in the church. And we see this in preaching. Uh, good preaching has a teaching element and a prophetic element. I mean, part of what we're doing is we're, we're teaching the scriptures. Uh, and this is that light bulb moment we have when we're in a sermon and we're like, oh, I never made that connection. Or, oh, I never, I never thought about God in this way. That's the teaching element. But good preaching should have a prophetic element, which is that moment in a sermon where, the, to be frank, the preacher kind of fades. And it's like Jesus is speaking straight to you. And your heart is wide open. And I, I can't do that. It's God speaking at that time. That's the prophetic element. So we see it in preaching, but we need it in the life of the church too. Um, not everyone is called to a formal teaching position in the church. Everyone is called to teach. Because everyone is called to make disciples. And how does Jesus describe that? He says, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Uh, not everyone is going to have a regular gift of prophetic word to your brothers and sisters in Christ, but everyone is called to encourage. And I'll say this, you know, uh, I did not grow up in a Pentecostal background, so the idea of prophecy is foreign to me as well. But Joel 2 seems to suggest that pro everyone prophesying will be a mark of the new covenant. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, even your male and female servants. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, he's saying, look, if someone enters a church and everyone is prophesying, which at least seems to suggest hypothetically everyone can prophesy. But imagine a church where everyone is engaged in teaching and being taught and encouraging and comforting and consoling one another. That is a church where Jesus feels like he is very present. And that's the, and I don't think it's a coincidence that it's from this kind of a church that the first missionary movement begins. And so I think an application for us is like, who are you discipling right now? Who are you encouraging? Who are you being discipled by? Who are you, who are you receiving encouragement from? Uh, discipleship programs are wonderful. And, and so we have small groups, we have programs like Sunday school, but the best thing is when Christians just organically and intentionally have relationships with one another, where they are discipling and being discipled, teaching and being taught, encouraging and being encouraged. So who are you doing that with? And I'll say this, discipleship is not just like older to younger. It's peer-to-peer -to -peer too. Every one of you, if you have the Spirit of God, you have something to teach. And likewise, every one of you, doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 150 years, you have something to learn. So how are you engaging in this kind of a relationship in this church? So that's our first point. A day in the life of Antioch, we see, we see what the church is, is, is up to, what the church looked like, and there's, 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 there's prophesying and there's teaching. But the second point, the Spirit sends out. Let's look at verse 2. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. It's interesting, there's a, there's, a, there's a prelude before we get to the actual point here of the Spirit sending out. And we're told what the church is doing when the Spirit speaks to them. 
says, while they were worshiping and fasting. Okay, worshiping there has a public sense. I mean, we worship God through all of our life in private ways, but this language, the wording it's using is, is, is a public form of worship. They're gathering to worship together, and they're fasting. What does that mean? The church is just living as Christians do. That's what it says. The Antioch church is just being an ordinary Christian church, gathering for public worship, engaging in spiritual disciplines, and then into that context, that's how the Spirit speaks. It was in the midst of regular, ordinary Christian discipleship that the Spirit speaks and sends out Saul and Barnabas on this first missionary movement. And again, I think that has something to say to us as a church. We have kind of two categories of people in our church. We have one large group uh, of students who've moved to Louisville for college or seminary or graduate school, and like you're in a very unique time of, of life where you, you're not sure if you'll be here forever, probably not, it's kind of transient, and it's exciting because you're preparing for the future. You're being trained for whatever vocation God is calling you to, and then you're going to move out, and it, and it can feel very transient, very rootless. Then we have another category of folks who, like, this is your home, and you work here, and you live here, and you're raising your kids here, or you're retired here. And what's interesting is that our text brings the same prophetic word to both groups. What is Jesus' will for your life right now? Well, it's to dig in and be faithful where you are. That's what Antioch did. They worshiped and they fasted. Do the regular, ordinary marks of discipleship. Because in the Antioch church, you had the same two categories, right? You had Antiochites, people just from Antioch. This is their life. They're, they have jobs. They're living. They're raising kids. And then you had Saul, who knew Antioch was not where he was going to be staying. He was just waiting for the Lord to make it clear. But what does Saul do in the meantime? He's faithful in the place that Jesus has put him until Jesus calls him out. What is Jesus' will for your life? Well, if you're a member of this church, he wants you to be faithfully present here and now. He wants you to love your brothers and sisters and make disciples, engage in spiritual disciplines, engage in the mission of the church here and now, just like what we see the believers of Antioch doing. And don't miss it. It's as, again, as they're engaging in that ordinary life of discipleship, the Spirit speaks. And oh, what a thing the Spirit says again. The Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. This is the second point. The Spirit sends out. Now, what does it mean that the Spirit spoke? It doesn't tell us. Maybe it was one of the prophets of the church. It came through a prophecy. Or maybe it was just a general inward conviction of everyone in the church that the Spirit pressed upon them saying, these two, it's time. It's time for them to go out. It doesn't tell us. But what is significant, and let's not miss this, this is the Spirit speaking directly to the church. Uh, and in fact, this is the only direct command the Spirit ever gives to a church in Acts. The only time. And so what the Spirit says and what it does takes on extra significance. Because there is no prescriptive, descriptive question here. This is the Spirit's will and desire for the church of Antioch. Send them out. And so there's two truths that we learn from the Spirit sending out, setting apart from uh, Barnabas and Saul. And it's the first truth is that the church does not send out Christians to do the work of, of God, uh, to do gospel work. 
The church doesn't, did not send out Saul and Barnabas. The Spirit sent Saul and Barnabas out, right? He says, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have already called them. And so likewise, the church doesn't call people to that. The church affirms and partners. I don't have the ability to call you to go to the nations, to uproot your life, to pick up your cross, and go do something in Jesus' name. I don't have the authority to do that. Only the Spirit of God does. But he does call us to do that. And the church affirms that. Second truth we see is that the movement of the Spirit of Jesus is always outward-oriented. Again, Acts 1.8, the whole purpose of the Spirit was to empower us for witness. And here we see, I mean, Antioch's got a good thing going on. Like, if you're at the church of Antioch, you're like, let me live and die here. This is a good place. God is at work. There's a deep fellowship. There's work to be done. And yet the movement of Jesus' Spirit is never, let's just circle the wagons and enjoy what we have. It's always sending out, going out. Again, in other words, what is the heart of Jesus and his spirit that we see in this text? What is Jesus' heart for us at Vine Street? It's to send us out. Whether that's across the street to our neighbors, across our workspace to our coworkers, or across the ocean to another culture and country where Jesus is not known, that is, this, that is the heart of Jesus for our church. And so I have three application questions for the second point the Spirit sends out. First application question, do you see our church, or any church for that matter, as primarily an instrument for mission? In other words, do you really see us as a missionary community? We are here to do the mission that Jesus has given us. Um, there's a lot of alternatives that we can fall into. Oftentimes, what do we view the church as? Well, it's a place to make friends, uh, a place to find like, a meaning and purpose in our life. Modern life can be pretty mundane and meaningless. Church gives us meaning. Um, place to grow in my relationship with Jesus. Place to hear good preaching. All good stuff, by the way. And I hope you find all that at Vine Street. But none of that's primary. What's primary is that we bear witness to the resurrection, sent out in Jesus' name. And all the other stuff, it, it, it's secondary. In fact, oftentimes that flows from that primary mission. But all too often, we make the secondary primary. In fact, I think that's the natural movement, the natural drift of every church and every Christian is to forget the mission we've been given and make these secondary good things, which we want to have, but we make those primary. And we forget the mission. In contrast to our natural drift, though, we serve a missionary God who has saved for himself a missionary church, which means that every Sunday we gather to worship God, to give him our praise, whether we've had a good week or a bad week. It don't matter. God is good. Every day, God is good. But we come to worship him that we might be filled with his spirit so that he then may send us back out into all the context that we live in, whether you're working or a student or retired, to be sent back out in Jesus' name, to work in Jesus' name, to study in Jesus' name, to parent in Jesus' name, to serve in Jesus' name, to bear witness to the gospel wherever we go. 
So again, do, do you see the church as primarily an instrument for mission? First application question. Second application question. Do you see, do you see yourself as having been sent by the Spirit of Christ into the context you are now in? Whether you're working or you're a student or you're retired, do you see yourself as having been sent by Jesus through his Spirit to be in that place for his name? Uh, as Baptists, we have a remarkable legacy of foreign missions. It's one of the reasons I love being a Baptist. We have William Carey and Hud, uh, Adonai Judson, and we don't have Hudson Taylor, unfortunately, but um, he was Baptistic. But anyways, that's just something we've always cared. We want to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth. That's beautiful and good, and I hope some of you go. But sometimes we forget, what is a missionary? Missionary is not a different breed of person. It's not a super saint. A missionary is simply a Christian who is called to be a Christian in a different place. That's all it is. When Paul went out, he was just being a Christian all around the Mediterranean world, all around the Roman Empire. In other words, every Christian is gifted with the same spirit the same missionary spirit to empower you to be Jesus' hands and feet wherever you live. The question is not whether you are called to missions. You are, if you're a Christian, you've been given his spirit. The question is whether you are called to missions near or far. That's the only question for a Christian. And so do you see yourself as having been sent by the spirit of Christ? That is a remarkable thing to realize you know, you, you may be doing a job that you don't love. That's okay. The risen Lord himself has sent you to do that job and to do it in his name. Maybe you're in this phase of life where it's just hard. Jesus has sent you by his spirit to be his redemptive presence, his witness in that space. Nothing we do is meaningless, Ever. We bring the, the spirit of the living God into every place we inhabit. So that's a remarkably exciting thing. So again, do you see the church as being primarily an instrument of mission? Do you see yourself as having been sent personally by the risen Jesus Christ into the context that you live in? And the third application question, is it possible that the spirit is sending you out like he does to Barnabas and Saul? Again, we're called to be missionaries wherever we live, but sometimes Jesus by spirit calls some of us to go where Jesus is not known. And I, I hope some of you don't stay in Louisville and don't move to Alabama, but you go where Christ is not known. That would be the greatest honor for us as a church to send you out. But to be honest, you can also be sent out to places that are much nearer we have a mission field outside the walls of this church. As we've been walking the neighborhood, I, you know, if I've talked to 100 people, I can count on one hand the people, number of people who are Christians. That's like really low percentage. And I wonder if Jesus is calling some of you by his spirit to uproot yourself and not move across an ocean, but to simply move into this neighborhood. Not for all the reasons that people want to move here because it's close to restaurants and, and, and bars. Obviously not if you're a student at Southern. Uh, it's walkable. It's like the urban dream, all this. That, not, not for those reasons, but because you want to see Jesus exalt in this neighborhood. And, and guys, we're going to keep doing our neighborhood walks. 
Because that's faithfulness. But I'll be honest, it's hard to be a missionary in a place we don't live in. Is Jesus calling some of you to uproot and move into this neighborhood? To be missionaries near? Is it possible Jesus is sending you out? And if he calls you, will you obey? So that's our second point. The Spirit Spirit sends out. And this brings us to our third point. The church obeys. So again, first point, a day in the life of Antioch. Second point, the Spirit sends out. And the third point, the church obeys. Let me read our third verse here. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Really quick summary. The church hears the command of the Spirit. The church discerns, they fast and they pray to make sure, and then they obey. They go. Again, are we willing to go as well? How do we hear the voice of Jesus? Uh, You know, what if Jesus is calling you to do something crazy like move into Germantown or move across an ocean or move into downtown New York City? I don't know. How How do you discern that? What's interesting, how prominent fasting and prayer is in these three verses. Uh, The church of Antioch is described as doing three things, worshiping, fasting, and praying. And obviously they're doing more than that. They're just like us. They had responsibilities and jobs and lives. But for Luke's purpose, who's writing this, what's what's important for us is that they were dedicating themselves to these three things, public worship together, fasting, and prayer. And so if we want to know how do I hear the voice of Jesus, let's take a cue from the church of Antioch fasting, and prayer. Now, if there are two disciplines, in my experience, no one seems to have. Uh, it, it's, it's fasting and actually evangelism. No one has the gift of evangelism. Um, and and I get, I, that, that's, like, that's me, which is why so ironic why God has called me to be pastor of Vine Street. But it, with fasting, again, guys, outside of like, the meals I've skipped because I've been fasting, I have probably missed 10 meals in my entire life. I do not skip meals. If I don't eat breakfast, I'm hungry by 8 a.m. And yet I have found, when I have fasted, and it is a very humbling experience because I'm very bad at it, even though like I am tired and my mind is foggy and I'm kind of sad because my blood sugar's low, there's just a way in which I'm attuned to the presence of Jesus and his voice in a way I'm not, when I'm not fasting. The church here in Antioch, they're fasting and they're praying, and it's in the midst of that that they hear the voice of Jesus saying, send out Barnabas and Saul. And so application, when was the last time you fasted so that you could better hear the voice of Jesus through his spirit? When was the last time you fasted just to better seek his face and hear his voice? Uh, two bits of advice if, 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 you, if you haven't fasted a whole lot. One is start small. Like don't, don't fast for three days. Just fast for one meal, um, and, and that'll probably be enough to start. Uh, now, now, some of you can skip breakfast and you don't get hungry till lunch, in which case, if you fast for breakfast, that kind of defeats the purpose. Like fast for a meal that you will feel hungry over. But start small. Um, And second, fast when you have time to pray. Uh, Like fast on your day off when you have like a morning to set aside to be hungry 
and devote that time to prayer. Because that's the whole point of fasting is to remove every distraction so you can give yourself exclusively to prayer. And if you fast, for instance, on a day you're working, like you're just going to be a bad worker and you're not going to be praying. So it kind of defeats the purpose. So fast on time when you actually have time to set aside and pray. But as a summary, again, Acts is turning a corner as, as, as a book. The gospel has been, has been blowing up in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, but it is about to explode across the Mediterranean world. And in the chapters we're going to be looking at coming ahead, we're going to see churches planted in modern-day Turkey and modern-day Greece, all the way to the capital of the Roman Empire itself, Rome. In fact, that's where it's going to end, Paul and Rome. And that's about to take place. And this shows us again God's heart. This shows us why God sent his son in the first place, to create a community, a church that would take the gospel throughout the world to their family and their neighbors and their coworkers, even those who live in different countries and cultures. So hear the voice of the Spirit in our text this morning because he still speaks and he still says the same thing. He still says, go out, Go out and bear witness to what you have seen and what you have known and know that Jesus goes with you no matter where you go. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray, we, we, we ask that though we are not fit vessels to be used by you, yet we want to be. We want to be your servants serving in your kingdom. We want to be the instruments that you use to bring life to those who are spiritually dead. We want to see our friends and our family, our neighbors come to you. And we know that that does not happen by our own power, our own strength, and that is a relief, for we are weak, but you are strong. So Jesus, we, we as much as we are able, we are, we are waiting for you to speak to us. We want to be faithful. We want to be obedient. Send us out in your name. Pray this in your beautiful and your majestic name. Amen.